Welcome to Jumpstart Your Joy. I'm your host, Paula Jenkins. I invite you to join me as we explore how inspiring people have chosen joy in their lives and what they have to share with us about how to jumpstart joy in the world. Plus, how do we follow our own hearts, find work that lights us up while mindfully noticing the role joy plays in our own journey. Hello and welcome to episode 127. This is Paula Jenkins, the host of Jumpstart Your Joy. Welcome, welcome. This week I am thrilled to have Julia Samuel, a psychotherapist out of Great Britain and the author of a brand new book called Grief Works, Stories on Death, Life and Surviving. She's joining me on the show. She was the original founder of the UK Child Bereavement Charity and she works with people who are going through losing someone they love or are in grief or bereavement. We talk about her journey from being a in publishing to becoming a therapist, and her love of personal connection. She also shares on how to reach out to people in your life who are grieving the loss of another person, and how the loss of iconic figures such as Princess Diana impacts society, along with talking about the loss that we all feel and how we relate to tragic situations like mass shootings. At first blush, grief may seem to be a very strange topic to be covered on a show about joy, but I see the two emotions as beautiful bookends to each other. And this conversation with Julia Samuel is really special and deep and meaningful, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. Because both joy and grief are vulnerable states in their own way. They're deeply personal emotions, and each of us experiences them in very different ways as well. What I love so much about Julia Samuel's book, Grief Works, is that she honors and understands that the journey of grieving is different for each person, and that it's also based on who you've lost in your life. So she decided to divide her book up into sections based on the person's relationship to the deceased. It's a beautiful book. She wrote it so that you could pick it up and put it down as you need it as you're going through the grieving process. And it was just a delight to get to meet her and speak with her. Before we get to her and to the show, I am so glad that you are here. Thank you so much for tuning in this week and always. If you're new to Jumpstart Your Joy, I publish show notes on the website at jumpstartyourjoy.com. And it those have uh, links to the guest's website, additional references, and some of my thoughts about the topics that we discuss. You can find them for this show at jumpstartyourjoy.com slash Julia Samuel. Some news and updates before we get to the interview. I'm so excited as well that my mastermind friends, Julie Houghton and Liz Applegate and I are hosting a free online workshop this Friday, which is March 23rd, 2018. Um, It'll be at 11 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And we're going to be talking about finding and claiming confidence in your life. So this is a workshop you can join online. There'll be a link that I'll send to you. We're going to be talking about how to deal with negative self-talk and your inner mean girl, we all have one, (laughs) and why familiar habits and comfort zones are keeping you from going after the things you really want and how to work through all of that. We're going to be sharing some tips and tricks and uh, just digging deep. It's going to be so much fun. You've met them both before because they've been on the show, and I know that you guys all just love Julie and Liz. So to sign up, you can visit jumpstartyourjoy.com and look for the Reclaiming Confidence image on the homepage or on the right right hand side of any page. Put your email address and your name in there and you're in for free. You will get the link to join us. 
<laughs> so I hope you'll join us for that. And let's move on to the interview with Julia Samuel. Welcome. Um, today, I am so excited to have Julia Samuel, who is the author of GriefWorks and a psychotherapist that works with grief and bereavement. Welcome to Jumpstart Your Joy, Julia. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm completely delighted to be here. Love <laughs> the title, Jumpstart Your Joy. It's such a good, like, put in the wires, put on a bit of gas and go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's what we aim to do, or I aim to do. Um, it's a real treat. Uh, um, maybe some listeners are, I don't know, even a little confused at, at the conversation of joy and grief, but I think this is going to be a really insightful and interesting conversation. And so I'm just, I am delighted to jump into the topic with you. So thank you for being on. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. The first question that I ask everyone um, is Would you tell us what you love most as a child? What were your earliest sparks of joy? Oh. Um, we had a swing in our garden. And um, after school, I'd come home and I'd have an orange juice and I'd jump on the swing. And sometimes my horrible big sisters would come and push me too high. Mm -hmm. So I'd get really scared. <laughs> but most of the time, if I did it just myself, that thing of flying on a swing, I really remember, yeah. Mm. That is gorgeous. Yeah, there's something special. A lot of people relate stories of of being outdoors and in nature. And yeah, there's something nice about being a child and having that space. Really uh, nice. I mean, we, we, it's snowing here in London, which is the first time in about five years, if you can believe it. Of mm -hmm. course, where you are, you never get snow. But <laughs> I remember that seeing pictures of my grandchildren in the snow remind me of me as a child in the snow, that excitement when you wake up and the whole world is white and then my grandchildren doing that and my own remembering my own children there's something kind of magical about that until it gets mm. all warm and muddy and slushy like that <laughs> yes yes it's funny I lived in Minnesota as a child and so I know very well that there's an interesting silence that happens the, after the first snow that you just is it's not expected and then you're in it and you're like what is this magical place it's wonderful it yeah wonderful. Mm, I love it. So now, of course, you work with people in in grief and bereavement, mm. and you've, you've written an amazing book, and you also started um, the institution of, is it Child Bereavement UK? Um, I'm a patron um, and a trustee. I'm very involved, yeah. It is mm. Child Bereavement UK, so we support families when a child dies or when a child is bereaved, mm. and we do that by either sort of direct contact with the families, um, by providing lots of resources and information, which anyone who's listening can get online, um, but also by training any of the professionals that would come, in, come into contact with bereaved families because, you know, how the adults around are with you, how they speak to you at the time of a tragedy stays with you forever and has a big impact on you for the rest of your life. So we try and do our best to make sure they get the best and most sensitive support. I want to dive in more about that, but I also want to know, um, how did you find your way? I believe you have a history of working in publishing before you moved into, is that correct, into bereavement work? Research. I'm very impressed. <laughs> how did you make that shift? I, the people who listen often are 
I don't know. They really delight in the story and daisy chain of events that lead someone to where they are. What what came up for you that you wanted to go into this line of work? I mean, I think there were early influences that were sort of less conscious, which was that both my parents were bereaved of very significant people when they were very young. So mm. by the time my mother was 25, her mother, her father, her sister and her brother, her entire family had died. Mm. Um, and my father, his father and brother. And as a family, we never spoke about them. I didn't know anything about them. I vaguely knew their names. And there were sort of black and white photographs of them all around the house. But, And I think that was a sort of unconscious influence, this sort of feeling of these um, black and white photographs and the shadows of these people that had died. So I think that influenced mm. me to go into bereavement. And the thing that influenced me to going to counselling was the love of connection the kind of that amazing feeling even just you and I like being open with each other and making a contact with someone that's more than superficial that's more that's going on about what's on the inside than the outside and I first saw that when I went with a friend to an AA meeting and I didn't know you could talk like that I didn't know that (laughs) you could say what you felt you Mm -hmm. know and the other people wouldn't just look at you like you were mad I mean it's hard to imagine that now because it's a different world but Mm, yeah about 35 years ago so um and that you know I did volunteering and then I did some training and it just step by step um got me to where I am now and I feel very very lucky that I found something that I really love doing as odd as it is, it's a damn weird job. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and I can understand that. I mean, I think I don't know. I think my own path. So I'm I'm a certified life coach at this point, and I think there's mm-hmm. what you just said about the connection and having dropping all of the I don't know, or as much of the filter as we can to have a real connection and a conversation is I think mm-hmm. also part of the draw for me. But I remember, so I went to Yale Divinity School for my master's, and mm-hmm. I was, a lot of people there were um, seminary tracks, so studying to be ministers of some sort. But I had, I, I had to go take pastoral counseling. I was totally drawn to it because of the question that I couldn't shake, what do I say when somebody says that someone near them has died? Because I, I didn't know. I'm sorry doesn't work. I mean, it, it's lovely, and it's, it shows some connection. But I didn't know how to go there. And that's where I wanted to go. So I can totally relate to you saying like, it's a very strange draw, but there's something about it that's like, no, I want to be able to be there for people in a way that's so different than what maybe society does. Can you know I have about five sessions finding out why you wanted to know that at that age? <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting. And I'm totally resonating with what you said about a history of family bereavement. And like, yeah, mm-hmm. there, there's some interesting things in there. Um, yeah. Because that's not know. usual, is it? I mean, yeah, it's not usual now. And I wish it was more usual, you know, because then I think those that are bereaved would have a much more sensitive response from those around them, including their, their own family. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm glad you did that. But it is interesting that you did and you did it so young. Yeah, well, and it is, it's, it's unusual. And I don't even know that the the question got answered or, or that there ever will be, you know, maybe as a type A personality, I really want answers, but I don't know that I'll ever have that answer of what do I say? It's obviously dependent on the person. I think that you're right that there isn't an answer, but 
the response that makes the most difference is acknowledgement. Is not trying to deny the grief or fix the grief or get the person to pull them out of their grief, but to, and it's the tone that you said and the way that you said as much as what you say is acknowledge, I'm so sorry that this has happened to you. This is devastating. And being quite simple and straightforward. I think where people feel most injured is when they feel it's being dismissed in some way and it isn't because people don't care it isn't because people are kind of unkind it's because they're scared Mm -hmm. and they either walk to the other side of the street because they don't know what to say or they kind of tell themselves well you know I'll be intrusive I'll be upsetting them if I go and remind them of what's happened Mm -hmm. and I want to kind of shout extremely loud you that you're not going to remind them of something they're obsessed with this this is all they're thinking about Mm. and the single most important thing you can do is the kind of love and connection of others when someone has died that's the big thing that makes the difference yeah just more acknowledgement if you know them well enough a hug if not you know just a a smile Mm -hmm. um people remember you know that in my book there's a little tiny episode when someone's crying on a tube um subway yeah and someone as total stranger passes her a tissue mm. i mean that stayed with her for four days you know it took one second but it's it is those small acts of kindness that help you with that absolute total sense of coldness and isolation that people feel when someone they really love has died yeah mm. i love that that kind of reaching out it's and it like you said, it's so simple. I mean that that feels like one of the little places where you jumpstart joy is yeah. if it's not joy in that moment, it's that you've given somebody a connection to say, I see you and you're real and I see you have emotions and we're all in this together. But it's the it's the warmth of joy. You mm. know, joy has many different constellations, <laughs> doesn't it? Mm. And it's the it's the thing that stays in your heart and warms you forever. I mean, she will never forget that moment. And it's a significant moment, as tiny as it was. And it is, it was a joyful moment because it was such, it was so straightforward and so kind and so unexpected, I think. One of the things that I really, well, and thank you for that, because I think there is insight in there that my, what, 26-year-old self was <laughs> wondering, <laughs> like, how do I, how do I do this? So thank you. She thanks you as well. Very good. <laughs> um, let's see. She probably could have talked to me and I could have told her then, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so one of the things I really love about your book is that it is such a loving and what beautiful glimpse into some stories of people who have been in grief. Um, I don't know if you want to walk through the premise of how you set it up, just so those listening can kind of understand the context for it. But it really is, I feel it's totally unique in in the space of literature to to address something like this in a personal way, but also in, I mean, f- a fairly clinical way with your background. Thank you. That's really, that really means a lot. Mm. I mean, I, I, when people are grieving, they feel very chaotic and they feel very sort of lost and out of control. So I wanted to 
have a structure that was very straightforward and quite simple to follow that you could pick it up and you could put it down where there was both information factual information about what could help them what grief is like you know some theories how friends and family can help but also where they could resonate and see themselves in people's lives so it's divided through stories of uh headed by the relationship with the person that's died so it's a partner dying parent dying a sibling dying incredibly tragically a child dying and then um facing your own death and there are three case studies in each section and the stories are very very different because everyone's grief is influenced by their own personality, their own um, background and history of loss and and their own um, history altogether and the support from those around them and what's happening at the time. So they're incredibly different and varied, but there are lots of strands, I mean, I don't know if you think this, that run through them all, Mm -hmm. which people can recognise as themselves. And also I wanted people... I hope they have, they do, to fit, hear my voice, not in an arrogant way, but in a way of, so they could feel supported, that they could feel like there was a version of me in them with their own process when they were reading the story, so that they could internalise that and use that to support themselves. Mm, yes, that does come through. I love that you've just put it that way, that there is a sense of support in in this Yes, that's beautiful. I hadn't thought of it that way, but it does come through. Yeah, I think interestingly, I don't remember which one Ruth or what her her story was. Her brother, but also her father. It was both. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I haven't lost a brother or a father, but um, some of the fam- the familial, I don't know if that's the word, but history mm-hmm. is that my father lost his mother at 16. And so that that is probably I was thinking as you were just saying that that's probably why I wanted to answer that question. Um, yes. But I also wonder if that's why I like Ruth's story. <laughs> is there something in there? But I don't know. Do you want to talk a little bit about Ruth or some of the people, their stories, or, or what other things you have to say about them? So I mean the the message that I'm wanting to um, get across is in some ways manifold, in other ways very simple. So the, the message is that you can't avoid grief. You know, mm-hmm. people want to control it, they want to shape it, they want to stop it. And, and naturally, of course, you don't want to feel pain. Nobody does. But grief has, it's a, it's a natural healing process that has a sort of a passage and process of its own. And it's pain is the agent of change. Pain is the thing that forces us against our will and against what we wish to recognize the reality of the death of the death of the person that we love. So it's pain that forces us to adjust to our new present without the person in it. Mm. And so the message is that you need to find ways of supporting yourself through the pain. And it's often the things that you do to stop your pain that actually cause you harm. And so the stories show, like with Ruth, she she came because her brother had died and uh, in a very sort of tragic um, car accident. And she she had quite a chaotic story herself. Her her father had been um, in Auschwitz 
And so she'd been brought up in a, in a household that was constantly on alert as if, so the trauma from her father's experience was transmitted to Ruth's being. So her relationship with the world was that of a traumatised child, although she was born well after the war had ended. And so her relationship with her brother dying was like a traumatised death. And her father's death had been a few years before. And a new death will always bring back a previous death. It puts you in touch with the same place, if that makes sense. So it's not that she hadn't done some of the work to do with her father's death, but it always kind of emerges and, and sets, fires up your previous losses. So the work was a lot of work about stabilising her, a lot of body work about how to allow herself to feel the pain without using lots of the kind of bad habits that she had, um, which was sex and food and alcohol and things, to block the pain, and how she finally kind of found a way of being at peace with both her father's and her brother's death. And there's so much in the pattern, I mean, if I may call it that, understanding that this is a real person, but there's also things that stand out amongst real people that then seem to be things that come up when grieving. These case studies were based on real work that I did. Right. So she is a real person. So some of them are composite. So some of them are two or three people that had similar stories that I put together. But Ruth's story is actually her story. And that was the work that we mm-hmm. did. So all the quotes all the process we did was was true. Wow. She's seen it and, you know, everyone who participated approved it and uh, all of that. So, sure. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> um, I mean, with a different name, I changed things so it's right. not identifiable. But It's interesting to call out the things, though, that, like, as you said, people tend to fall back to things that either offer an escape for whatever the pain is they're feeling um, and that it's, I know in some of the interviews I've even seen with you that you talk about what some of those those patterns can look like for people. Um, but I think, I mean, I guess we, I'd love to dive into that a little bit because people are probably like, "What are they? What are they?" But, um, but like knowing that there is that there are these things that seem to come up for people when they're going through the process of grief. Because I think what as we enter into the process of bereavement, it feels like a free fall. Mm-hmm. And and we're not ever told or it's never talked about like what that thing feels like or what you might experience so that you have a sense of, oh, yeah, that's and not that you really check in or, or people are always that self-aware that they do, but but that, you know, there's a process and that you might do some of these things. Like for some reason, I feel like there's there's solace in that for at least me. I guess my question would be around why in society do we shut down? grief and the process of grieving i think it's it's the two things that sort of come together and conflate one is that i think we have a kind of fear about death and a kind of magical thinking that if i think or talk about death i might hasten my own death or death of somebody else so if i don't think about it maybe it's not going to happen but also we find the not knowing the not having control the you know, we don't know how we're going to die. We don't know what happens. Some people have faith and that gives them great support. But the, 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 the not being sure, particularly in the 21st century, I think drives people a bit nuts. So they just don't go there. They don't think about it. Mm. And then that means that they're incredibly ignorant 
and have no, as you say, knowledge of the natural process of, of what they're likely to feel. And as you say, it feels like free fall. People talk about it feeling like they're going mad. It hits them like the weather. They don't have control. But they don't know that that is normal. So they not only are they feeling, you know, completely thrown by their grief, they also think, well, I'm not doing this right. I'm I'm making a fuss. I, I've really got to get a hold of this and sort myself out. I've got to do better. And then they kind of self-attack and make what's already extremely painful much worse. Mm. Um, and that's why I wrote the book, because I was so angry that people were so ignorant. You know, I want people to know that when you're hurting like this and you feel like you're mad, you're normal. doesn't mean you're mad. But what you need to do is two things. Look at what your default mode way of coping with difficulty is. And you can't stop that. It's not like you can switch it off and suddenly kind of start breathing and meditating and, you know, going, la, la, let this come through my system. (laughs) If you've always been someone who, you know, took a slug of vodka. But at the same time, sort of recognize that what is in you that will happen and you can't stop it, but also develop other systems that balance that out so that you have some way of supporting yourself that is also helpful. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes so much sense. Yes. Um, well, and I know we talked a little before we hit the official record button, but around, it, it brings back to me the the conversation people can go back and listen to Fred LeBlanc, which is the mm-hmm. lead singer of Cowboy Mouth. And he talked about divorce and knowing that he had all of this kind of grieving energy that had to go somewhere and I think there was such wisdom in that like knowing that he had to release it Mm. or it was going to bring him down you know he was going to go to a a place that he didn't really necessarily care to go and so for him it was drumming I mean he's a drummer so that's where it went or it was performing because that's what he does And, and is there a way if someone's grieving for them to direct it I guess is it healthy to direct it in a way that feels more positive or do you need to feel the really hard stuff to get through it? I think I think sort of yes and yes. I think, I mean, drumming is quite a physical thing. <laughs> and it's quite yeah. an expression of kind of rage. Mm-hmm. And grief feels like fear, but it also feels like hurt and rage. So drumming is, I can see, is immensely therapeutic. And also he'd feel potent. You know, he'd be on the stage, he'd be you know, drumming, doing the thing he's really brilliant at and really feeling connected to his emotion. And I can see, you know, what I talk about is that you need to find a way of expressing your grief. And that really would be a way of expressing your grief. And so that is therapeutic. But you can have all sorts of ways of expressing your grief that are not helpful, you know, where where you have fights with people, where you're, you know, constantly raging around and anger, it's fine to kind of scream into a pillow or bash a pillow, but afterwards you have to do some kind of meditation to calm you down. And then you have to sort of switch, watch something funny or listen to something funny so that you don't stay in the anger. Because otherwise, if you trigger the anger and let it really be expressed and don't find a way of winding it down, calming yourself down, soothing yourself, it just multiplies. Mm. So... It's, a, it's really about moving from states. I think it's, you know, it's allowing yourself time to talk to a friend or be sad or drum or, you know, do something that you feel is expressing your grief. It can be painting, it can be gardening. There's no prescription, 
but then doing also something that soothes you, that calms you, that distracts you, that allows you to have a break from the pain and kind of choosing to do both, I think is very, very helpful. Mm. Yeah. Um, Being active. People feel so passive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I think the interesting thing there is that I don't know if this is what you see with clients but do do a lot of people just what do they fear opening up the grief too much because they fear they'll get lost in it or like what because it seems like a lot of people hold back from experiencing the you know either the crying or or the outward expression of how sad they really are is there is there something in there that they I don't know that you see come up and or that you have a way to help um, I don't know, manage for someone. I mean, I think that shows really insight. I think people are frightened that if I really let myself feel all I'm feeling, maybe I will never feel anything else, that it will literally just kind of wash me away. And actually, paradoxically, you know, the reverse is true, is that when you really let yourself kind of connect and find a way of expressing what you really feel, it releases you and you do whatever it is, you have that expression. And then it in fact creates a space in you to allow some healing. So it's the sort of opposite of what people think. It's this paradox by Mm. allowing yourself to feel and be the aspects of yourself that you most fear, paradoxically release yourself to be free and heal and find a way of healing. And you know, that's why people come and see me. But I think you you don't have to see a therapist. I think people can, you know, have friends. And I, I think you can't, it's very hard to do that on your own. Mm-hmm. Do you think you need this witnessing and this connection with another person who can help stabilise you, can help support you, who can kind of be beside you in it? Because otherwise I think it's much more frightening. Mm. That's beautiful. Yes. <laughs> When I when I talk about healing, I am very much not of the school of, you know, this is a journey, then you're done and you have closure, mm-hmm. you know, then you're fixed. I'm very much of the school of this is an ongoing, if it's a hugely important, significant love that's died, it's probably a lifelong process. That doesn't mean that you're not going to get on with your life and love again and live again. But this isn't about forgetting and moving on. It's about that the love continues, the love of the person that's died, finding a way of that residing in you and having ways of connecting to the person that's died and remembering it's not about forgetting and living your life with them in very much a sort of radically different place but as part of you and there will always be times 35 years later if you have a smell or a piece of music or a place that that loss will come through you and you'll feel it again because you know your body remembers your body holds the score and so the person does stay part of you yeah well and I know you've you've talked about that in other other places as well about how our bodies hold the memories Mm. Maybe how does that work or or what does that mean to you? I mean, what neuroscience know is that we, our system is primed to go on alert, to look for danger or to, to look, to seek for it, 
to for in, so any intense experience will um, leave a marker in our system. So that that thing of fight or flight. So when I hope I'm explaining this clearly, when someone is bereaved, the whole system is elevated and they kind of often feel very vigilant and they go into fight or flight or they can feel very frozen. Mm-hmm. And so they will re- have absolute recall of the experience of the person dying or an image of it if they didn't see them. And th- those memories are stay in the body, but also the intense loving memories stay in the body. But the work that I do is that I work with the difficult, painful members in the body so that they shift from being kind of in the in the uh, fight or flight part of the brain that stays on alert. And if they inch by inch talk them through and connect them with their feelings, they eventually can file them, if you like, in the in the memory part of your brain. So they don't keep you kind of traumatized. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I, I, in hearing you speak about it, it also um, reminds me of a conversation with someone who's worked with trauma mm-hmm. and then the book of Waking the Tiger mm-hmm. um, by Peter, is it Levine? Um, yeah. It seems like those hard things that we face in our lives, oftentimes, like you're saying, then get written into our bodies in some way. And so it's important to do, like you said, the activity to help ourselves what rewire so that we're not constantly feeling like we're going back to that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I love, I mean, interesting and fascinating that those two things are so closely intertwined. It's wow. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's complex and it's simple. It sort of makes sense, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it does. Um, What, um, I don't know. I kind of, I would love to ask a little bit about, um, maybe how, I'm not sure how to word this one, but so I know that you, um, were close with Princess Diana, um, Mm -hmm. and that you would have obviously experienced her death in a very personal way, but it, it strikes me that in losing someone like that, the whole world took to grieving Mm -hmm. in, in different ways. Um, because it's, I, I, I don't, I don't know why, but that was a really hard person to see leave this earth. I'm wondering in your experience, how do you see, how does grief work within groups? And I'm kind of asking because I've, we've seen this really sad unfolding in, in the U.S. of, of all these, you know, school massacres. Mm-hmm. And, and I think all of us are in this state of like, we don't really know what to do, mm-hmm. both from a, like an activist perspective, which I don't, we don't need to get into that part, but mm-hmm. but also with the sadness, like how does this happen? And and so I guess my question is, I see some similarities similarities in the way people who are within a group and are not personally affected directly by a loss, but yet you feel a deep and immense sense of helplessness, maybe, and grief. And what what would you have to say about those kinds of losses? I mean, there's you know there's an immense amount in what you. What I see is the kind of headline responses because it's very complicated. I think with people like Diana or David Bowie or John Mm. Lennon, when you know enormous iconic figures that 
have been part of our lives, every day of our lives, whether it's the playlist to our life or the person we've seen in the newspaper, we form an attachment with them. Mm-hmm. You know, we kind of they we feel that we know them and they become important to us. And she represented, I think globally, as well as um very, very much in the UK, this image of she wasn't just a princess, but she was someone who really cared and loved the people who most people didn't care and love. So um, there was an empathy and a compassion and a sort of um, authenticity that she showed that people connected with her that felt very true, Mm -hmm. felt very real. Um, And then, of course, the fact that it was a death out of time. So she was very young. She was very beautiful. It was the most tragic death in in that horrific um, car crash. Everybody felt devastated and they felt that they had lost someone who was part of their lives. Yes. And that to a great extent is true. The the kind of piece that I make from it is and I'm not dismissing it, but if you don't actually know someone, you're not defending yourself against the real pain of it. So that kind of massive outpouring of crying. People could cry for for her, but it also put them in touch with their own losses. But they didn't kind of shut down as you do when, so when, when you know, I think a lot of people who really knew her and loved her, they were so shocked to begin with. They, I mean, they did cry, but nothing like that, because it took months and months and months to really come to terms with the death, because it, it, it was, she was really a part of our lives, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So there's a, does that make sense? Oh, it makes good. It makes, yes, it makes beautiful sense in that for those who are close to the person, obviously the, the grieving process is very different. And thank you. Thank you for using an example that, that is close to you. But then for those of us who have seen someone every day or or almost or weekly or whatever, and we've related yeah. to them as we grew up and we've seen them be amazing and we've rooted for them and maybe paid to go see them in concert or whatever, like, they're important. And and I, what I'm hearing you say is that in some ways, when we're not as close to them. It's easier it, to express your pain at the time. Yeah. And it's opening up maybe some losses that we never really Absolutely. made an outward appearance of, of being really sad. But now we have, coachy term, but a container for, <laughs> for showing yeah. this kind of loss in an appropriate, socially appropriate way. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the kind of great guru of um, loss, said, you can't cry somebody else's tears. Mm. So in all of the tears that were genuine for her, I think there were a lot of tears that were about their own lives and about about the existential cruelty of life. You know, I think that's where these terrible murders, and I think the circumstances of the death have an enormous impact. But things like these terrible shootings... Um, of which you've had too many in the last mm. year, makes us wonder about everything to do with life. Is life safe? What what planet are we on? It makes us ask very many profound questions to which we have really no answers. Mm. And when it's children that are murdered, it, it's like grief with the volume turned up. It, it intensifies that, the wrongness of it, the wickedness of it, the madness of it. And I think it scares us all. And I think it makes us all feel that that could, you know, there, but by the grace of God, go I feel frightened that it could happen to any one of us. So I think it shakes the whole world in our kind of sense of safety. Yes. 
I agree. Yeah. And it kind of does take us to that place of the depths of the, of humanity when something happens like this and we all feel so helpless that, yeah, it, it's, it's not, it, I don't, I can't comprehend it. And probably because I'm, <laughs> I don't, you know, I have a seven-year-old, there's a whole lot going on there for me, yeah. but I think it yeah. is, I'm also so proud of these children that are then standing up in the midst of their bereavement, like that are standing up to say no more. So thank you for, for diving into those things with me. I have a couple, what would you like to tell us where we can find your book um, and uh, any other information about where to get in touch with you? If somebody wants to reach out, um, where can they find you? So they can get it in any um, good bookstore, I hope. They can certainly get it on Amazon. And I can't, is it Barnes and Noble, the other American book? Yes. Mm -hmm. Barnes and Noble. And I have a website, www.griefworks.co.uk, where you could, that I have like lots of supportive things. Like that I, I wrote in the book, Eight Pillars of Strength, and that's kind of in more detail on the website. And you can leave messages and there are postings from other people. So it's a, it's a supportive website if you want to go there. And also from there, you can also get the book. I have two last questions um, before before we part. Um, what has resistance looked like for you and how have you, I don't know, how have you dealt with it or overcome it in your life? The first time I wanted to go into counselling, there's an organisation here which is for supporting couples and families called Relate. It's the biggest counselling organisation. And they turned me down and I was absolutely gutted and I went on doing it. So, I mean, my main, when I'm resisted, I have a, I think it's ignorance uh, that means I just keep going. And I think I'm sometimes it's like a cart horse that kind of plods up a hill very, very slowly. And sometimes you get over the hurdle and sometimes you don't. But I just kind of keep going. <laughs> um, that's not a very beautiful image, I'm afraid. But that I think that is what I do. <laughs> I think, I think that's insightful. It's kind of, you know, it's like Dory of Finding Nemo. It's, it's the just keep swimming yeah. <laughs> methodology. I think it works perfectly. Um, and last and most joyfully, what are three ways that you can think of to jumpstart joy in your life, in the world, or in other people's lives? Oh, my goodness. Well, being with my grandchildren, um, or I get sent little videos of them on our family WhatsApp. So that. I go, if I've had a really difficult day, I go and look at those every day. It's kind of the giggling, the, you know, and you can smell them on the video. I can just, it's fantastic. <laughs> in nature, walking in the hills, um, uh, even in the snow or the sun or the wind or the rain, I love all weathers. I love being outside. And I think nature is incredibly healing. And then, I mean, obviously hugging my husband, who I really love, but putting that aside, which you'd be annoyed. The other thing is I watch rom-coms and happy stuff. People always want me to watch all the dead things. <laughs> and I watch, you know, the, I'm watching The Amazing Mrs. Maisel at the moment. Oh, so good. Um, it's so good. So I watch stuff that makes me laugh because it it takes me away from what I do in the day. Mm. Gives me hope again. I think it's a lot about hope and love basically. I love it. 
Thank you so much, Julia, for being on and for sharing all of this. It's just been a real treat. Thank you. It's a real pleasure, Paula. Thank you for your really interesting questions and your openness with me too. Thank you, Julia, so much for being on the show this week. Such a treat to get to meet you. And I just really thank you so much for taking the time and and also sharing all this wisdom with people. If you want to find out more about Julia Samuel and her book, and her work, you can visit her website at griefworks.co.uk or you can head over to my website at jumpstartyourjoy.com slash Julia Samuel and you will get the show notes for this episode complete with links to the books that we talk about and all the information about Julia and her book as well. While you're on the site, be sure and sign up for the Reclaiming Confidence Workshop that is going to be held this Friday, March 23rd. 2018, which I'm going to be hosting, of course, with Julie and Liz, my mastermind buddies. It's going to be a great workshop. It's us live. It's so much fun. I just love the energy we have when we're all together. So you'll see the sign up for that on the homepage, up in the big images at the top of the page or on the right hand side of any page if you're looking at the show notes themselves. The next episode for the podcast airs, boom, 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 this Thursday. This is usually a Tuesday show, but I am doing five episodes a month now. And so sometimes there is an extra bonus episode on usually the third Thursday of a month. And it's for my Friendpreneur series. This time I have Laura Heacock coming on to talk to me all about being a friend (laughs) and an entrepreneur, which is what that word means if it is new to you. She is the second episode in the series, the Friendpreneur series. And so Laura is a coach and the author of Practical Kindness. That's her brand new book. And she's joining me to talk about juggling a nine to five job with her coaching business, how to incorporate kindness every day and all the unique challenges that come with starting a new business while still working your other job and just how you juggle it all. (laughs) So I'm sure a lot of this will resonate with you guys. I know there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there and people who are starting up businesses in the coaching and I like to call them the healing arts, uh, the creative arts. So I hope you'll come back and join us for that really great conversation on Thursday. And until then, I hope that your days are filled with so much joy. 